Today's episode of Undesigned comes to you from the land of the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation. We acknowledge and pay respects to all elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone, Costa here. I just wanted to jump in to give you guys a heads up. This episode features some references to sexual assault about three quarters into the conversation. Rest assured, we don't go into any detail, but if for any reason whatsoever you find this content to be difficult or if it's traumatic, you might want to avoid that part of the episode. Have we started recording? Oh, cool. We're already recording anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Cheeky boy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Undesign. I'm your host, Costa Lucas, and thank you so much for joining me on this mammoth task to untangle the world's wicked problems and redesign new futures. I know firsthand that we all have so much we can bring to these big challenges, so listen in and see where you fit in as we continue to try and undesign the topic of online dating. In our first episode with Dr. Lauren Rosewarn, we looked at the complex and very human factors that influence our attitudes towards dating apps and how we can overcome them. We looked at this in the context of how technophobic culture influences how we stigmatize online dating. In this episode then, the second of a two-part conversation, we get to explore this issue from the perspective of one of the world's biggest dating apps. Chatting to us in this episode is our special guest, Lucille McCart. Lucille is the APAC Communications Director of Bumble, which now operates two online dating apps, including Bumble and Badoo. Since February 2021, both apps operate in 150 countries with 2.8 million paying users as of March 2021. Lucille gives us an insightful walkthrough of this topic from the point of view of one of the biggest companies in the game. First, she walks us through what dating culture is like post-pandemic, and then we talk about the negative perceptions towards dating technologies and how Bumble plays its role in destigmatizing modern dating culture. If you haven't listened to the first part of this conversation with Dr. Lauren Rosewarn, I would highly recommend that you do that first. That way you can see for yourself how the two major perspectives from research and from a company in practice, both split apart and come together on the very same question. I think we're recording. Well, Lucille, thank you so much for joining us this morning. How are you going? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, awesome. And where are you streaming in from? I'm streaming in from Sydney. Thank you again for joining us to talk about this question of the way that technology impacts online dating, dating, and just relationship making generally. And I guess my first question, just to get started really, is 2020 has been reported as the biggest year for dating apps across the board, since, particularly since the pandemic was made official and there were global lockdowns everywhere. So as someone that's been part of the Bumble family for a long time, how has the last two years looked from your point of view in relation to dating and relationship making using technology like Bumble? Yeah, it's really funny because for the first two or so years that I was working with Bumble, everything was about creating an environment where people could meet physically eventually, you know, obviously in a safe in a safe manner, but a date was sort of the end goal of every Bumble conversation, Bumble match. Everything was geared towards creating an, an online environment which would allow people to meet in real life. That's what everything was focused on. You know, that's why dating apps are geolocated because you people are wanting to meet someone, you know, within their local radius that they could potentially go on a date with. And then almost overnight, the idea of meeting someone in real life almost became impossible across the world as we all sort of went into that first global lockdown especially and it completely changed the game really in terms of what people were using dating apps for and how from a you know communications and marketing perspective how we were talking to our audience and at Bumble we were really fortunate that we had actually introduced video calling capabilities into the app about six months before the pandemic started And we had introduced it as a safety feature because obviously enabling someone to video call through the app is a pretty great way of being able to verify their identity if you you do have those kind of concerns. And also it just is is kind of a good thing to be able to do to check if that 
person is someone that you want to go on a date with. You know, it's a much lower commitment, like first <laughs> progression on from like just texting with someone. So we already had those capabilities to voice and video call through the app. And so almost immediately the conversation shifted towards virtual dating. And right. I think in Australia, we saw something like a 73% increase in the number of video calls that were being run through the app between March 2020 and May 2020. Oh, wow. Just yeah. in two months. Just in those two months, those first two months where everyone was in lockdown, no one could go anywhere. And people were really scared at that time. Like, I think we've all forgotten. I personally have put it out of my mind. But when I think back, that was when we think about in Australia being shortage of tests. So no one was really getting tested at that time because we didn't have enough tests. And so health advice was only go and get tested if you're really sick. So no one really knew if they potentially had the virus, if they had passed it on, what was going on. This was the toilet paper crisis. Oh, my God, yeah. During these times. And I was was, just thinking like hand sanitizer was like they were struggling to keep up with production. PPE shortage, all that kind of stuff. This was like the the first, you know, the, the, the first go of lockdown that at the same time we were also a bit innocent in the sense that we didn't think that this would we. No one at that point last year thought we would still be potentially in lockdown this time this year. So it was a very strange time in the world. But what the immediate trend that we noticed is that when you take away people's ability to meet up in person, it does not take away their desire to meet new people, to connect, to socialize, to engage, all of those things. So we saw that 73% increase in video calls, but we also saw 23% increase, I believe it was 23%, in the volume of messages being sent through the app. And the average length of the video call was 28 minutes. And if you're thinking about this is someone that you may have only had a couple of conversations with, 28 minutes is quite a long time yeah. to be talking on the phone. Like when I think about when I call my parents once a week to catch up, those calls rarely go for 28 minutes. You know? <laughs> and they're my parents who I've known my whole life. So of course. I think... You know, it was just really interesting to see that shift towards virtual dating and and communicating in that completely different way. And then, you know, we had all those stories of like, as people came out of lockdown, they were meeting up with people for the first time who they'd been speaking to every day for months and getting in relationships that way or getting in relationships before they'd actually even met in person. So I think that is really just evident of the idea that we we are social creatures and we also have a really strong desire to meet new people and to, you know, be expanding our social circles. And I also think the pandemic experience has been very, very different for single people when you think about single singles bubbles and, you know, bubble buddies and all those kind of things. Like if you've been single through this pandemic, you've had a very different experience to someone who's married with kids coupled yeah neither I would necessarily say none is better or worse than the other yeah of course um because some married people I know would argue that being trapped in the house with your partner is <laughs> worse than being there by yourself but yeah you know, that, that it's just different experiences that people have had and so then by around October last year the the most interesting trend to me was that we ran a survey that said at least 20 percent of the people on Bumble in Australia at that time were recently single, having broken up with people in the peak of the pandemic. And a lot of the reasons cited were inability to see each other. And also just this idea that the lockdown and the pandemic really pushed relationships in one direction or another. If there was cracks, they became, you know, massive holes. And if things were strong, then you saw, like I personally saw a lot of engagements of my friends, a lot of people having babies over the last year and a half. So COVID I babies. I feel like it really pushed yeah. people in one direction or another. So around yeah October last year, we were seeing a big chunk of people on the app, potentially first-time dating app users who had, bro- had broken up with people in the pandemic. And a lot of the research was also saying that for women, this was kind of like an eat, pray, love moment where people were saying, you know, I've had this extra time to myself and it gave me the opportunity to actually think about what I wanted, reassess, think about what qualities I'm looking for in a partner and potentially be more okay with the idea of being single because I've I've had this sort of ability to like reassess my life. 
I'm sure men had similar experiences. Sure, sure. Recently, we don't have a we don't have a movie point of reference. We don't have a Roberts or whoever it was in that movie to to inspire you like that. So that's right. And then one of the more interesting trends that we've seen this year, particularly in Sydney, is a real skew towards people looking for serious relationships and wanting to. You know, everyone's talking about this like hot back summer coming up where everyone's going to like get wild and, you know, that very well may happen. But I also think you can want two things at the same time. You can want to get wild on a Saturday night and have fun um, and, you know, hook up whatever it is, but also be thinking about getting into a long-term relationship. And I think that's what more and more people, especially in places like Sydney and Melbourne that have been impacted by lockdowns the most, that's what they're thinking about. And we saw between May and June of this year, which is really when we were leading into this like second or third big outbreak, yeah. 45% jump in people asking their matches or potential matches about COVID symptoms. Wow. Um, if they'd had the vaccine, talking about health and safety a lot more, because I think, again, we were in this really strange position where we were facing going into a second lockdown people didn't really know how long it was going to last for and in the same way as the first major lockdown of last year was really scary this was really scary because not a lot of people were vaccinated didn't really know what was happening it all felt very scary so all of a sudden people who had felt very relaxed about dating over summer when things were going well in Australia now it was like really top of mind for people to be saying like have you had any COVID symptoms before I consider meeting up with you. So wow. there's some really interesting trends, but I would say you mentioned you're in Perth and I think something that is really interesting is that, you know, Bumble and dating, but also lockdowns and all of these things have been very city level uh, lockdowns and city level experiences. However, I also feel like it has had a big impact on the national psyche. Um, sure. Okay. You know, yeah. I don't think that if you're in Adelaide or Perth, you've been completely free of any sort of stress or anxiety or, you know, anguish about what's happening because there is still that impending feeling of it could come here any day. We don't know what's going to happen. Also our international borders are closed. There are things happening on a national level that mean like life is still not normal. So what I find really interesting is that we still do see less so than Sydney and Melbourne. We do still see people across the country in places like Brisbane, Perth, Adelaide, indicating that they want to date virtually on their Bumble profiles. And there is still a bit of that happening, not in the same, you're talking about like 10 to 15% of people, depending on the city, but there is still that trend happening. It's not just isolated to the cities that have had long lockdowns, which I think just says a lot about the fact that, you know, what's happening in Melbourne and Sydney does still cause have a, have a cause and effect in other cities as well. Of course. Actually, Lucille, like that's really interesting, this idea of how do I say it? I guess, you know, you mentioned, I guess, people's stated preferences or stated priorities changing over the course of this two, let's call it two years, right? Since, you know, well, we're getting close to two years where official pandemic was announced. There was the fear that came along with the uncertainty, then the fear that comes along with not knowing when it'll lift the fear of not knowing if our vaccines will catch up with these new strands and and yada yada. There's this real, I'm noticing this kind of like you described sort of the the spike in interest in technology and in, in activity in dating technology in the first two months. And then this kind of move towards by October of people wanting to find something more serious, right? And as you were talking, I was wondering whether you have thoughts on if the pandemic has an intensifying effect on people's very normal social needs to connect, for example. So like, do you think there's any, like, do you see a kind of a through line between like the length of time we've been in lockdown and the type of things people are seeking in, in online, like in dating, whether it's online or using online technology? For sure. For sure. I think that some of the survey results we got back last year were also saying, people were saying things like, I want to find a partner because I don't want to do lockdown by myself again. Right. And things like that. So I think there's a couple of things happening at the same time. You've got people ending relationships because they know that they're not right for them. That person wasn't right for whatever reason. And then being, and you've got people who were already single, both of those groups of people more focused on the qualities they want in a partner 
things like, you know, your values and your beliefs and your personality traits being more important than potentially what we were focused on before with more of the physical stuff and more of the level stuff. So you've got all of those changes happening while at the same time you've got people being like, if we're going to be in this, you know, about six months in to last year, I think people realised this wasn't going to be over very soon. So ever since then, I think you've also got people being like, I don't want to, If I, especially if you live by yourself, I don't want to be single during this time if this is going to go on forever. But then you've also got people like I know a very close friend who was engaged and was like, no way can I do another minute <laughs> of this, you know. So I think it definitely, I think it had the same effect of pushing people to make mm-hmm. that decision and to think about what they want. And the the impact of that for some people is getting into relationships and for some people it's Yeah. That's so true. And like my, my research background is in extremism, right? And in polarization. And I look at things that divide communities, split communities, and also make people form intense communities as a result of something. And hearing you talk about our dating lives and our romantic lives and our just relationship seeking lives, it kind of sounds like a similar effect where it's like, whatever sort of whatever your kind of your predisposition is or your kind of your like where you, where your heart is at that moment that sort of frustrating event comes into play it pushes you towards that event depending on where you where it found you you know like if you're at that place in your life where like uh, you know uh, i think people talk about covid as if it exposed the fault lines in a lot of our relationships whether that's with our government with our communities with our relationships and this seems to be some form of that where it's like it made you choose like before the fault line splits, you had to choose which part of the, which side of that fault line you wanted to stand on, right? So yeah, that, that seems like it kind of happened to some extent there. Yeah. And I think if you think about all the things that have happened during COVID, you think about Black Lives Matter, you think all of the things that happened in the US last year, you think about any moment in Australian politics over the last 18 months, like it really did sort of, you know, open the the floodgates of, or, or lift, lift the hood, I guess, on, on a lot of things. But I also think our attitudes to relationships are dating are very much impacted by our community. And if you are in a community or if you're in a friendship group of all single people, your attitude about being single is going to be different than if all of your friends are married and you are single, or if you're in a community where getting married and having children and fulfilling that very specific role that's been assigned to you is very important and that's going to impact you whether you whether you're wanting to be in that or whether you're rejecting it it's going to have a much bigger impact than if you were in a community of all like-minded people so I think we don't necessarily we're not conscious of the impact that our community always has on every part of our lives we think we have a lot of agency when it comes to dating which we, we obviously do but not quite as much as what we think we're not always aware of all of the different things in society that are impacting mm. our view on what we want out of a relationship that is actually such a good segue into a question i was wanting to ask which was like we've talked about the relationship like the impact of covid on how people use dating technology and 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 all well, actually more sorry we talked about it more in the context of people's relationship needs and my question is like you've got that aspect of it, but what about COVID's impact from your point of view on people's attitudes towards dating technology generally and using dating technology? So, I mean, it's fair to say, right, that before even the pandemic, online dating is more or less considered like a new normal, you know, like it's it's a dumb thing, particularly or in the Australian context, and I'm sure the US. Can you see an attitude shift in any way about like, I guess my question is, is it still kind of stigmatized in the way that we kind of think of online dating? You know, we, at least when it started, you know, there was discourse around how online dating, yeah, like actually you alluded to it earlier about people appearing desperate or people appearing to be like putting yourself out there and saying, hey, I want to date someone is a really brave thing to do. And it can be quite an, a vulnerable position to take. Has the pandemic changed any of that in terms of people's attitudes towards dating? And how how has Bumble fit into that equation, I guess, or, or apps like Bumble? Yeah, I think it's completely changed it in a lot of ways. I think that in the US and Australia and the UK, we were we were already on the on the journey to destigmatizing dating apps quite significantly. But when I think back to when I first started, you know, talking to 
journalists and influencers about Bumble four or five years ago, it was like, I would never tell people I'm single. You know, I would never tell people that I was using a dating app or what do you mean? Like women have to talk first. Like, you know, that was just this kind of really alien concept. When you think about Bumble, it's important to remember, I think that Bumble's, you know, uh, beginnings were pre Me Too, pre Time's Up, pre all of the things that have happened in the last two years that have brought feminism and women empowerment to the top of the, you know, cultural conversation. So it was pre all of that. And so people were like, well, why would I want a man to know that I'm interested in him? Like, it, that's not how you play the game. You're meant, to, women are meant to take this backseat role and men are meant to, you know, be the drivers in this situation, which, you know, we can get into that, you know, in a bit more depth later. But when you talk about the stigmatization, it was, it was definitely changing, but all the things that we've done had contributed a lot to that shift away from, you know, there being a big stigma around dating apps. But then when you get, when we got into the pandemic, all of a sudden dating apps were the only way to meet new people and the only way to date. You know, I think if you said to most people, would you rather meet someone on a dating app or would you rather meet them in a bar and have your cute romantic comedy love story you can tell people? Everyone you meet say, I want the meet cute. But like you can have a meet cute on a dating app. It just looks different right. to what we have been shown through culture and through you know, all of the, the, the stimulus that we see. But I think if you did have friends or family that were maybe had not so progressive views towards dating apps, if you told them that you met someone on a dating app during lockdown, it'd be like, oh, yeah, of course. You know, that's the only way people. So it was just that different attitudes for it. But a lot of our research has said that people that are using dating apps find them far more important part of their lives than what they did pre-lockdown because our circles have become so much smaller. So it was a necessity thing. You know, it's kind of, it's a, it's a cultural concession or like a cultural kind of allowance or like a, a, a loosening of some pretty rigid cultural norms in some ways because yeah, of I think the situation. Think about, especially in our more Western societies, if you think of those lingering elements that still thought it was desperate or it didn't make sense or like they didn't want to do it, for whatever reason, you know, or it just became so much more acceptable to those factions, I guess, because it was the only option for a long time in a lot of big cities. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, so that's one aspect of it, right? Where you've got the kind of the, the stigma associated with the lack of romance or the perceived lack of romance, maybe even some cultural differences about like what is acceptable rules of engagement in dating. And then you've got this other aspect, which I know Bumble's been very proactive with, which is around safety and fear and, and, you know, and fear for one's safety and, you know, being subjected to all sorts of pretty terrible behavior using dating technology. Do you know if those fears have a greater weight in people's apprehension towards dating apps, even though it's accepted as a new normal, I, I, I still get the impression from, you know, talking to some of the researchers or reading some of the literature that's out there that there's still an apprehension for, for some people, particularly women, where the, the risks are pretty terrible, that fear and safety play into apprehension towards dating apps. And given Bumble's taken some pretty big steps to address some of those safety concerns, do you see any shifts in people's attitudes or inclinations towards dating and using the apps more? Yeah, I think that not to downplay any perceptions of risk, but I think as as women, we are trained to fear strangers and it's that's a whole other conversation as to where the biggest risk factor is because you know ultimately you're actually more likely to you know be assaulted by someone that you know than by a stranger but doesn't mitigate the risk of meeting someone in real life that you haven't met before obviously we, we take that really seriously but I do think what does feed into some of the things that you just mentioned is this we're socially trained to be afraid of strangers and that's not, that's not a bad thing you know probably is healthy to have a healthy fear of the unknown but I think that definitely plays into some hesitation but I think at at Bumble safety and at both safety in the app and what we can do to facilitate safer in real life connections it's like the most important thing it's our number one priority there's nothing that's more important than that because if you if you don't take that seriously that you may as well not be 
not be even trying, you know, because people people do have these concerns. And if you don't prove that you're taking them seriously, why should they trust us? And so we have some of the strongest in-app features when it comes to protecting people that are, and trying to trying to manage what types of people you could potentially come into contact with on the app. It's not perfect, but it is, you know, it's something that we invest a lot of energy and time and money into. And then we also, so some of those examples are things like we have a really strong anti-spam team that looks into how we moderate what happens on the app. So that might be an example of that might be we have worked with the Anti-Defamation League, which is a US-based company. Yeah, very familiar. Yeah, 2017. And so what we did was develop a, a very comprehensive list of stop words so basically that would be racial slurs, it would be misogynistic language, it would cover a whole range of things. And if we see people using that language, our team is responsible for trying to identify those profiles and take them down ideally before they've matched with someone. So trying to actively you know, manage people who are potentially going to be bad actors and remove them before they've had a chance to even get reported, ideally. But then we also at the same time have a really strong block and report system in the app. We encourage people to use as much as possible that sort of polices that behavior as well. If someone is being abusive or doing something egregious, we will block them, ban them, do all of those things to make sure that they can't match with other people on the app as well. And then we have things like, you know, and the photo verification. We've got a feature called private detector, which automatically blurs suspected lewd photos that are sent to the app. So basically if we suspect that a photo, a lewd photo has been sent, we obviously can't tell if it's solicited or unsolicited. So it gives the recipient the option to view it, report it or delete it. So no casting no judgment on consensual behavior, but also protecting people from potentially unsolicited behavior. So they don't have to look at that. They can just report it straight to our team who will take appropriate action. But I think, you know, as we have this conversation about how our safety policies intersect with our gender, views on gender and all of those sort of things, one thing that, and racism and all of the all of the things that we've taken a stand on, what is really important to us is education. So we have one of the best customer experience teams, I think, in the industry. And what they're trained to do is, Obviously, if someone does something really egregious, they'll be banned. But I think there is always that sort of middle ground of someone who has said something offensive. But if we have, if we see an opportunity to educate someone and say, here's why using that word is offensive, or here's why the language you used was offensive, here's why you shouldn't do that. I think we'll always try and take that opportunity. And we have a lot of resources to share, to help explain, because I think we don't want to just block someone for, for saying something or doing something and then have them go download a different app and repeat that same behavior. You know, we're not actually changing anything that way. It's about trying to say, you know, we introduced a new policy this year all around body shaming. So right. specifically classifying body shaming language as harassment, which gives us grounds to ban people for, for using that kind of language. So the thing about body shaming is it's really interesting. Same, we have a similar policy around fetishization and, and racial fetishization and what is really oh, right. interesting about both of these topics is a lot of the time the perpetrator thinks they're flirting right wow it's crazy talk about cultural <laughs> cultural conditioning there right yeah. where you know there's maybe a bit of a tendency to like like I, I I kind of link that in my mind to sort of like teasing the person you like kind of but like this is like the adult just to slightly like the adult graduation of it in a more sinister direction. And Truly, it, it really is. And it's and you will have scenarios where a person has is reprimanded and and can't understand what they've done wrong because they think saying to someone, oh, to use a generic example, I love big girls. Well, good for you, but don't talk to this woman like that because what you've shown is that you are valuing 
even though you show it as valuing her, you've completely looked past who she is as a person and gone straight to a physical attribute that she may or may not be able to control, whether it's height, skin colour, hair colour, ability level, whatever it might be. And so in those kind of scenarios, it's like, how do we make sure that this behaviour doesn't repeat on our app or anywhere? How do we take the opportunity to educate, often men, not always, people about how to behave better? And I think that's a really important part of the strategy as well is keeping the platform safe but also providing opportunities to educate people about why we have these policies and how they can improve their behaviour and potentially get better success themselves that way as well. Mm, That's so interesting because, I mean, again, I draw the parallels to sort of conversations on social media around like extremist content or violent content or you know really graphic footage where you know the question like because my work comes from more from the prevention side than the intervention side and it's like well how do you disincentivize people from sharing that stuff firstly and then like what do you do if it does make it on there and like what are the opportunities to educate as well as you say which is a really important piece and there doesn't seem to be a simple answer to that And then the other thing is just figuring out technology as a way to sort of help mine information and recognize things that then need human assessment to determine context, right? So are those similar sorts of conversations you're having around like, just for example, and this is, you know, I'm only using this as an uncomfortable example to just understand it, right? If just say, for example, if someone was happy being spoken to like that in the context of a dating app. I'm sure it's rare, but like, you know, some people take on the challenge of like giving as good as they get sort of thing. Is there anything that recognizes that sort of context or uh, communication style? Is that, or you, is the view that you might be discouraging that because you think that is even a step too far or like not sort of a type of style you want to cultivate on an app like that? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a difficult example, but I think in terms of how we respond broadly, we have a, a very big investment in AI technology to try and pick up all of this stuff, but it's also reviewed by a team of thousands of moderators. So there's a human element to that as well. So if that's, I mean, consensual behavior is consensual behavior. There's not really our place to cast judgment on that. And I think when you get into that territory where you are policing consensual behavior, then you probably have taken it a bit too far. So I don't, I don't like love the idea of that, but I, there in terms of how the technology works, there is a, there's a huge automated element to it and a huge tech element to it, but it's all supported by human moderators who review all of these instances and, and it makes total sense because yeah. AI, AI would never replace, well, I mean, maybe, but I don't think it could replace human judgment, you know, at least in its current form. And I think what makes Bumble and, and, and most dating apps different to a lot of other social networks is when you're dating, you're exceptionally vulnerable. You're putting yourself out there. You're making yourself vulnerable in ways that most people aren't doing when they're creating an Instagram post. And you're also thinking, you know, when you're making your profile, you're, you're doing it with the knowledge that anyone can see it. But majority of the activity that you take on, undertake on an app is personal. It's one-on-one conversations versus putting up an Instagram post that anyone can see. So we have an extra layer of responsibility in protecting people who are putting themselves out there and being vulnerable. So yeah, it's that's just a really interesting. Have to have that human element to it as well. Yeah, you're right. I ne- actually, that's something I probably haven't appreciated till now, just kind of like the exceptional vulnerability that comes with saying, hey, I am looking to connect with someone else, whether that's casually or more long-term. That's a really bold, brave thing to put yourself out there for considering yeah, society's attitudes towards that stuff. There's generally. that dance that you have to do on a dating app of, oh, I'm here to date people. Oh, you're here to date people too. Do we know if we want to date each other? I don't know. We have to kind of dance around that for a little bit until we get to know each other a bit better because you don't have that confirmation of attraction that you have if you meet someone in person. Like if you're talking to someone at a bar, you can, you can, you've got a better indication of just by body language and things like that, of whether or not they're attracted to you or whether or not it's what's happening is reciprocated. So you've got to do a bit more of a dance, work a bit harder on a dating app, which I actually, I, I think can create 
stronger foundations for relationships because you have to communicate more with your with your words. Yeah, communication's <laughs> yeah. key, isn't it? Um, I guess in in person, you have more to work with generally, like in 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 with all those things you say. But communication, like if you're just, it's mainly writing. Now you've expanded to video and voice and things like that too. Yeah, arguably, if you don't communicate in a way that represents who you think you are, or if someone understands to be a certain way just because of the way you type or the type of things you write down, like that could, yeah, you could, that's quite a, that's quite an X factor in how connections are formed, I guess, right? Like how we even write or communicate with limited body language or limited sort of not having all of our full faculties to sort of advertise ourselves with or to, to, to just show all of ourselves with. I think that would be a huge challenge. Yeah. And I think that is why you see not always, but a lot of the time of couples that have met online getting serious faster because they got to the juicy parts a lot quicker, especially people who have matched and, and met in lockdown where, you know, there's, there's like one of the trends we saw that we identified was slow dating, like the, where people are courting now in a different way than what they were doing two years ago. You know, they're messaging for longer, they're video calling, they're doing all of these things before they meet up in person, which also means by nature of that, that they're waiting longer to get physical and be intimate and do all of those things. So the, the courting process is a lot longer and everything has slowed mm. down. So what is happening in that period where you might normally be overtaken by the, the physical stuff, you're having conversations and you're getting into the understanding of who you are as people a lot faster because that physical element has been removed. And that doesn't necessarily always mean that that's going to result in a relationship. It might just mean that you're not dating someone a lot faster than you know, you're weeding people out in a different way as well. Because before where you might've gone on a date with someone and then say, had a few conversations, got another date the next week, like all that's been cut out. So walking a lot more and you're, you're ruling people out just as quickly as you're getting serious with the right people. So I think that's really interesting. Great. Part you of know, as well. just to zoom out a bit, Lauren, cause I know that, you know, you also have visibility on how like dating apps kind of work elsewhere. And we've kind of been confined to the Australian context at the moment, which is really, obviously it makes sense, but I'm curious to see, like, what have you noticed about how, like the uptake of dating apps like Bumble in other places that you work? Yeah. So my role at the moment, I'm doing a lot of work in Southeast Asia, which has been really interesting because what we see there is a lot of similarities in terms of impact of the pandemic. Like a lot of people looking for relationships, a lot of people doing virtual dating, all of those sort of similar trends that are that are very much global then we also see completely different cultural considerations what we see in Australia so for example in places like Singapore and the Philippines people are adding the religion badge to their profile a lot more frequently and they're filtering by religion a lot more frequently because that's something that is much more part of their public life and and their private life than what is in Australia I think there is there is a lot of religious people in Australia, but they it, it's maybe not a big part of your who you show to people in your early days. It's maybe not as big a consideration when you're dating, but it, that's very different in a lot of the parts of Asia that we're, we're expanding into at the moment, which I think is just really interesting thing to, to think about. And then also when you think about family, for example, you know, I don't know a lot of people in their 20s in Australia whose family is actively involved in their dating life however that's a different different sort of consideration in a lot of Asian countries where you've got not just you know multi-generational living a lot more frequently but also it's a bigger focus on marriage and all of those different things and your family is a lot more involved in all parts of your life you the family dynamic is very different so it's everything about a lot of those parts of dating is very different in in other parts of the world, which I find really interesting. And then it's like India, for example, you know, when you talk about our, our mission, feminism, women's empowerment and safety, you know, we introduced some features in India. In India, women on Bumble can choose to just display their initials, initial of their first name, and that's only available in India. It's a, oh, okay. it's a feature that we 
specifically introduced there because of safety concerns that Indian women had. And then once they've matched with someone, once they feel comfortable, they can update their profile so it shows their their first name. So there has been some adaptations that we've made in some of these countries because the the type of safety consideration is different in every place. Yeah, right. So it's it's almost like safety and cultural contexts. Well, safety safety measures informed by cultural contexts will look different from place to place. But the idea is that progress looks like change, like things are slightly better than they were before this measure was in place. Is that kind of the the approach? Yeah, I think, think it's interesting to think about, you know, the rise of dating apps is very much linked to things like internet penetration, but also changing social values. So as a lot of, you know, there are countries like Indonesia, India are changing fast in terms of the, the common social values. And so as women become more empowered in their dating lives, dating apps become a more acceptable way of meeting people. So all of those things are kind of as one rises, so do the others, which which I think is fascinating. But yeah, safety is is a really interesting consideration because when you think about a country like Singapore, for example, which is known to be a very safe place, you know, women in Singapore are concerned about you know, catfishing and financial scams and a lot of things that uh, are typical for newer internet users and newer dating app users. It's one of the things that you are, you know, we were seeing a lot of that financial scams and things like that happening in Australia sort of four or five years ago when dating apps were first becoming big. So it's just interesting to see what people are considering as, a, as you know, their concerns in different cult- cultures in different countries. Yeah, why? I guess, look, because, I mean, I feel like there's so much that we could explore here. I'm just, and I'm, you know, conscious of your time. So, you know, as we sort of tail out of the interview, out of our conversation, I'm kind of just thinking more like what what challenges lay ahead for Bumble and what's the biggest sort of obstacle or just kind of, what's the biggest challenge you have in front of you, I guess? that I can't put it any more simply than that. For, from as an organization, as a dating app, company? I think there are two things. I think one is the safety conversations that we were talking about earlier and how we can earn the trust of our community. And so some of the ways that we've been improving on that recently is um, we introduced the safety and wellbeing center within the app. So that gives people easy access to resources like across the whole range of things that impact your safety and wellbeing of using a dating app. So that's everything from how to stay safe, when you're meeting up with some, like our advice on where and when and how you should consider meeting up with someone in real life, but also things like how to deal with ghosting or how to deal with rejection, because there's that whole other part of using a dating app that doesn't get discussed as much, but also can have a really big impact on on people's mental health because rejection is a natural part of dating. It's going to happen, but when you're dating on an app, you're dating at scale. So you're you're going to experience that rejection more and more frequently. So resources on how to deal with that. We also recently introduced a global partnership with a company called Bloom that offers free trauma therapy to sexual assault survivors. Wow, okay. Reports a sexual assault to our customer service team. They can give them free codes to access, I think it's up to six sessions with a Bloom therapist to help them deal with the trauma of that experience. And that will be expanded over the next year or so into more languages. And it will be expanded to include any victim of sexual assault, no matter where you met your assailant, not just it was on a dating app. And I think that is, that's the solution at one end for a behavior that's already occurred, but also continuing to invest in all of the features that we have in app and all of the other things that we do that is trying to prevent. So it's like trying to, you know, prevention and intervention happening at the same time. So I think safety is really important, showing and earning the trust of our community and and also educating them that these features exist and that they can use them and that they should use them. And a lot of our systems are reliant on reporting. So making our community of users feel confident that if they report someone, we'll take action because we need them to report incidents so that we can manage them. Safety is one really important consideration. But then I think the other thing comes to our 
mission as it relates to gender. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, I think what it means to talk about women making the first move is so different depending on the woman that you're talking to, where she is in the world, what experiences she's had. So I think adapting that mission so that it makes sense for women in Indonesia and women in, you know, Bondi. <laughs> and I think that's, that, that's it's in our ability to do that. But I think what is, what is I think, a really challenge, really big challenge for us is that, you know, a lot of, I think, women still and men still have very traditional views when it comes to dating. I think dating is one of the last areas for feminism to like really penetrate. Like I would challenge you to find a woman who thinks that gender roles should exist in her workplace. You know, we've been very, very good at changing our attitudes about women at work, women in sport, women, all these things where we're, you know, progressing really fast. Women in sport, we're not maybe progressing that fast, but like sure. there's at least there's teams now. <laughs> there's there's prog yeah. Slow progress, but progress, right? Like yeah, this, yeah. We have to cherish the small wins, but there's yeah. acknowledge there's a long way to go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like women in politics, we're dragging our feet, but like, you know, yeah, it's sure. just, <laughs> we're getting there with a lot of these with a lot of these things. And we have very firm views amongst men and women that that is good and that is what should be happening and that is progress. But dating is this like really funny part of our lives where we've just been so conditioned on what it should look like, what our roles are as men and women, and we want to change all of that. And it's not something you can do overnight because, you know, you, you, you said something about romance earlier and I actually have a lot of issues with the concept of romance because I yeah. think every single example that you can provide of a romantic experience is gendered. It, uh, yeah. Um, and it's so, yeah. it, but that's such a subjective experience. Like when you, when you yeah. think about what you enjoy and what, what makes your heart sing, you know, that's so specific to the individual, you know, it's, it's hard to generalize and create a standard we all have to adhere to, but you're right. It like at least cultural constructions of romance are so gendered. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I think we're, we're up against a huge challenge in terms of, you know, changing people's views on, you know, women making the first move on Bumble isn't just about sending the first message. It's not a gimmick. It's not about, you know, what's your pickup line. It's about how can we encourage women to have that level of agency at every stage throughout a relationship. It's not just about how you start the relationship. It's about who asks the person out on the first date, who pays for the first date, who goes in for the first kiss, who asks to move in together, who opens up a conversation about having babies, who proposes, like we want to change all of that and say all of that is gendered and all of it is rubbish because you wouldn't accept that in any other part of your life. And it actually doesn't serve men either. Like a lot of men also have these views where it's like, I must do all of these things, but why does, why can't a man be asked out on a date? Why can't a man be romanced? Why can't a man be taken out to dinner and given flowers and done that whole thing? And if a man wants to stay at home and raise a family why can't he you know there are all of these things where when you say women must do this and men must do this you're putting both genders in boxes that they can't break out from and it doesn't serve either of them and then you're also you've got you know all of this social structure around that that impacts your ability to relate to each other as well because you're coming at everything from a very gendered point of view and that's not even to acknowledge like non-binary people and how they literally just about to say that yeah yeah exactly yeah and I think as long as we have these really rigid gender roles for men and women you're making it so much harder for non-binary or lgbtqa communities to like fit into how how this all works as well so yeah I think that's a big challenge for us in terms of you know we've, we've come a long way but there is so much further to go when it comes to this gender conversation, I think a lot of people think that it's kind of almost done, you know, or we just need to fix the gender pay gap by like 10% and then it's done. And it's mm. like, no, there's so much more to do. Mm. It's a bit deeper than that, yeah. isn't it? I guess, Lucille, just to close out then, I know there's a lot of things that need to change and could change. If you had to pick one just as a starting point that you might think might domino to make cultural sort of room for these new attitudes, is there anything you would like to see happen? 
Um, or anything you think needs to happen? Girls? I hate, and I know a lot of my friends are going to, you know, feel dirty about any of this. I hate proposals. I hate it. Every time I see it, I think there is a couple who two weeks ago were two equal members of this relationship. And yeah. now all of a sudden the man has asked the woman to be his wife. And now all of a sudden she's a bride and she's planning a wedding and he's, she said yes, all that kind of hashtag. Not I, ha- I hate every part of it. Don't get me wrong. I love jewelry. I'd love to wear yeah. ring one day. <laughs> I love um, it. I'm all for the bold takes. That's awesome. Yeah. I love weddings. I love parties. <laughs> love all of that part, but I hate all of the social narrative that comes around proposals and engagements and weddings. I just think it's so gendered. I think the wedding industry is so gendered and so designed to make women spend money on stupid stuff. So I'm going to go big and say I hate proposals. That's awesome. (laughs) I love that. That is such a cool take to end on. Lucille, thank you so much for your time and for such a really, like just a really thought-provoking conversation. And it's nice to see it from it's this is a question because it speaks to some, such a fundamental human experience to want to connect in whether it's just for fun whether it's for something more serious like that's something that is what's one of the few things i think that are universal that we at least all have those desires whatever mm. they look like so yeah. really appreciate your time talking to us about it from from your point of view just is there for anyone that's interested in what you do or whether it's bumble or yourself where can people find you if they're interested yeah they can find me on linkedin or instagram lucy mccart is my name and my um handle that's fantastic well have a wonderful rest of day and uh yeah look let's stay posted and i'd love to hear more about what you're doing and yeah look forward to seeing what comes next thanks so much cheers lucille my pleasure You have been listening to Undesign, a series of conversations about the big issues that matter to all of us. Undesign is made possible by the wonderful team at Draw History. And if you want to learn more about each guest or each topic, we have curated a suite of resources and reflections for you on our Undesign page at www.drawhistory.com. Thank you to the talented Jimmy Lindbull for editing and mixing our audio. Special thank you to our guests for joining us and showing us how important we all are in redesigning our world's futures. And last but not least, a huge thank you to you, our dear listeners, for joining us on this journey of discovery and hope. The future needs you. Make sure you stay on the journey with us by subscribing to Undesign on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are available.